Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Michael Suarez, and as the director of Rare Book School at the University of Virginia, it's my great privilege to welcome you to this symposium. The at the University of Virginia part of Rare Book School is really important. Our situation in the university has helped us to teach people from all over the world for 25 years now. We could not do the work that we do educationally without the endorsement of the university librarian, John, Zun John Unsworth, and without the great work of UVA Special Collections. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the importance and centrality of that partnership to our work. What does Rare Book School do? We use bibliographical and book historical methods to impart skills and historical knowledge to librarians and scholars, to curators and archivists and conservators who are responsible for the stewardship of our cultural heritage. But we realize that there's far more that we must do. And the terrible events here in Charlottesville in August of 2017 have galvanized our efforts and strengthened our resolve to do more and to be more for the communities that we serve. Right now, more than ever, it's important for communities to engage in authentic conversation about the cultural record to ensure that we're working closely together to preserve an inclusive and diverse archive that documents the full range of cultural experience. Members of this audience will doubtless recall that passage in the early chapters of Between the World and Me when Coates recounts his formative reading. I needed, he says, more books. At Howard University, one of the greatest collections of books could be found in the Moreland Springen Research Center, where your grandfather, he's writing to his son, remember, once worked. Moreland held archives, papers, collections, and virtually every book written by or about black people. For the most significant portion of my time at the Mecca, I followed a simple ritual. I would walk into the Moreland reading room and fill out three call slips for three different works. I would take a seat at one of these long tables. I would draw out my pen, ouch, and one of my black and white composition books. I would open the books and read, while filling my composition books with notes on my reading, new vocabulary words, and sentences of my own invention. I would arrive in the morning and request, three call slips at a time, the works of every writer I had heard spoken of in classrooms or out on the yard. I had to inhale all the pages. As part of the much-needed growth of special collections and archives, and the ways that special collections and archives understands its own mission, 
Rare Book School has been working closely with partner institutions to advance its Global Book Histories initiative, which promotes a wider global perspective on the history of book and the registration of archives. There is much more to be done, however, and we hope that the symposium today will begin a conversation that will help us to identify next steps, how to foster stronger relationships with communities in order to document stories and voices that have been obscured, lost, or overlooked, for to do so will be for everybody's good. As part of this work, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the traditional lands of the Monacan people. Access to cultural heritage is a human right, and that right is recognized by UNESCO as crucial to individual and community identity. By acting together, strategically and intentionally, we recognize our past legacies and losses, which continue to inflect our experience of the historical record. Let us together strive to serve as stronger stewards, as better neighbors, and as more able partners. Welcome. Good morning. Welcome to this public symposium on archives, memory, and identity, which has been called together by the Rare Book School and which the University Library is pleased to support. The library has a commitment to archives, memory, and identity, and lately we've been quite actively engaged in establishing connections to the community around the record of Charlottesville's contemporary history and their community archives. For example, uh, Rebecca Coleman and Michelle Claiborne with Jeremy Boggs and others have recently been funded for two years by the Institute of Museum and Library Services to collaborate with the larger Charlottesville community and a university equity initiative to imagine and co-create a Charlottesville area regional equity atlas, a platform to combine, visualize, and make accessible data about local disparities. An equity atlas serves as a data and policy tool for leaders and advocates to advance more equitable community while helping citizens hold decision makers accountable. The library has also recently been funded by Lyricis, a library membership organization, for a project proposed by Kara McClurkin, Jeremy Boggs, and Amanda Visconti, working with others. It's called Digital Collecting in Times of Crisis. This grant will enable cultural institutions and communities of all sizes to be prepared for and able to implement digital collecting strategies during and after rapidly evolving social community crises by creating templates and documentation to quickly set up an open source tool to collect and provide access to digital materials, including photos, videos, and social media. And three of our staff, Sony Prosper, Ezie Amos, and Tracy Freeman, were funded by the provost's office to spend a week earlier this fall on the pilgrimage to Montgomery's National Memorial for Peace and Justice, informally known as the Lynching Museum. 
This was an intense experience for our staff, and I'm grateful to them for doing some of the hardest work of community building. So I'm here because the library is genuinely invested in the topic of this symposium in local and immediate and practical ways, but I'm also here to introduce the UVA community to a friend and longtime collaborator, Juliana Richardson. I'm sure Michael or others will more formally introduce her to you later in the day. Meanwhile, I want to welcome her as someone with whom I've worked for a decade on projects supported by the IMLS, the National Science Foundation, and the Mellon Foundation, all of which projects were designed to advance the history maker's unique mission to collect oral histories of contemporary African Americans in all walks of life. I began working with Juliana in 2008 when I was at the University of Illinois as dean of their Graduate School of Library and Information Science. The president of the university sponsored a three-campus collaboration to integrate the history maker's content into classroom education at Illinois. When I moved from Illinois to Brandeis University in Massachusetts, Juliana's alma mater, as it turns out, she and I worked together to introduce focus groups of librarians, scholars, and students in higher education to the history makers in order to understand how best to integrate that digital archive into academic library collections for teaching and research. Based on what we learned in that project, we have over the last two years been working with longtime history makers, collaborators at Carnegie Mellon University to move the history makers infrastructure to scalable cloud resources, develop mark records to make each interview findable in the catalog systems of subscribing libraries, and we've transformed, thanks to Carnegie Mellon, an aging flash-based video platform to HTML5 and improved many aspects of functionality and usability in that digital archive. We've also got some surprising uptake by faculty at participating campuses, and I'm sure Juliana will have something to say about that later. But I'll just end by saying that for searchability, breadth of coverage, contemporaneity, and even serendipity, the History Makers is a truly significant archive of human memory and identity. My example of that is this story Juliana told me recently. After a visit to the New York Public Library, Juliana got a follow-up email that said, the day after your visit, we received a reference question about the correct pronunciation of two old department stores in Harlem for an audiobook recording. The stores were Blumstein's and Koch's. The assistant chief librarian in my division used history makers to get the answer. It's the only resource that could have answered the question. What is amazing about archives is that you can't fully anticipate the questions they could answer. I hope the same is true of your symposium and that you find yourself at the end of it surprised by answers. Thank you. I'm Donna C., and I serve as Administrative Director of the Andrew W. Mellon Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography at Rare Book School. It's my pleasure to introduce the panelists for the day's first session on the theme of access. Our first presentation of the session is titled Spatial Narratives of the Historic Tibetan Capital of Lhasa with 3D GIS. Guoping Kuang is an assistant professor in the Department of Urban and Environmental Planning at UVA School of Architecture. He is a planning scholar, practitioner, and digital innovator. His research interests include digital visualization, geodesign, and an alternative futures approach in urban 
and landscape planning. He has published widely in English and Chinese and has conducted many urban and landscape planning projects worldwide. He is the co-founder of the Digital Atlas of Roman and Medieval Civilizations, one of the most influential projects in digital humanities. He will unfortunately have to leave directly after his panel's presentation because of a scheduling conflict, but please be aware that he will be back for the evening reception if you'd like to catch him then with any questions you may have. Will Rourke has a background in architecture from Virginia Tech and architectural history from UVA. He has been the lead architectural consultant to the UVA Tibetan and Himalayan Library since 2001 and has been to Tibet four times for cultural fieldwork. He has been a 3D content specialist with the UVA Library for over 20 years and more recently with the Scholars Lab. And he's currently focused on the area of cultural heritage informatics in the collection, processing, preservation, and distribution of 3D data of historical architecture and artifacts. His current methods employ the use of 3D laser scanning and photogrammetry for collecting measured data of historical content. And he's been working with the UVA Library for open access to data by the scholarly community. Locally, he's been working with UVA faculty and students in architecture and architectural history, archaeology and engineering, the staff of the Fralin Museum of Art and the UVA Library's Special Collections, and architects and archaeologists at Montpelier and Mont Monticello to curate 3D data for cultural heritage resources. Nationally, he's active with 3D data preservation efforts such as the Community Standards for Preservation of 3D Data, and he has lectured on 3D cultural heritage informatics. The final member of this particular panel presentation is Curtis R. Schaefer, who is the Francis Myers Ball Professor and Chair of the Department of Religious Studies here at UVA. He co-directs UVA's Tibetan Buddhist Studies graduate program. He was first introduced to the field of book history in a course on the history of the book in America, offered in the late 1990s by David Hall at Harvard University, where he re received his PhD in 2000. Since then, his work has been impacted by the synergy created in book history between intellectual, social, and material modes of investigation and interpretation. This impact culminated in the publication of his first book, um, The Culture of the Book in Tibet. Um, Curtis is the author, editor, or translator of eight other books, including The Life of the Buddha, The Tibetan History Reader, and Sources of Tibetan Tradition, which is the largest English anthology of Tibetan literature published to date. He recently co-created a literary and visual life of the Buddha based on a four-century-old mural of the Buddha's story located in western Tibet, and he is currently completing a collection of Buddhist meditation literature for Penguin Classics. Thank you, Donna, and thank you very much for having us here today. I'm always really excited to talk about uh, one of my favorite places on Earth. Um, but a caveat before I even begin, uh, what I'm about to talk about, what we're about to talk about, is a work in progress. Um, so it's not completed, but it's on its way. So this project began in 2009 as a Mellon-funded uh, think tank to uh, discuss how we could take 3D technologies and web 3D technologies um, and make them more scholarly rather than just uh, navigating 3D spaces. And uh, we wanted full scholarly interaction. Uh, the think tank turned into a uh, consortium, the Humanities Virtual Worlds Consortium, which is a multi-institutional, multi-national uh, effort. Um, and uh, each member of the consortium is building or built their own 3D environments uh, that could then incorporate a platform that we developed um, 
so that you could uh, more scholarly interact with the 3D content and some background data and uh, textual and image content. Um, the UVA team was uh, led by David Germano and Curtis, and uh, through the uh, Tibetan Himalayan Library and the Tibetan Studies Program. Um, we uh, also in, uh, reached out to the academic com community here and um, found specialists in GIS and, of course, Tibetan specialists uh, for the content. We have a legacy of working in 3D and GIS uh, since the late 90s into the early 2000s. Um, we built uh, 3D environments that were purely uh, just navigable environments. You would walk through um, a Tibetan monastery, for example, and be able to just get windows to pop up. Um, and then we also built a lot of layered GIS-like maps um, that were very static and not uh, uh, tied to any data at all. And so we saw a need um, to work on an updated version of all these things. These were done about 18 years ago um, with current GIS uh, technologies and current Web 3D technologies. And so we saw this project as um, an opportunity to uh, build a GIS that was very much needed for the uh, historic makeup of Lhasa. Um, and so uh, Building off of what we knew, we started to work on that GIS, and I'm going to let Goping talk about that a little bit more. Oh, but first, actually, we did had to do a lot of research first uh, into the data and the history uh, in the background of historic Lhasa. Um, so first, we're actually going to talk about those resources with Curtis. As, as, uh, Will said, uh, this was well orchestrated, yep. largely by Will, and um, <laughs> largely unrehearsed. Until now. So, until now. Yes, that's right. So, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you all for being here and listening to um, some stories about places far away for the first part of the morning. Um, why this place? Why Lhasa? And what's at stake now? Uh, let me try and answer both of those questions in a short period of time. So... Do we have a picture of Do we have a picture of the Potsila that you can show? Uh, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> You're going to see a picture of the Potsila. Right now we're looking at the most important person uh, uh, in our story, who's the fifth Dalai Lama. So many of you probably know the 14th Dalai Lama, currently alive, probably the most famous Buddhist leader in the world. Well, he's the 14th in a line of intentional reincarnations. Uh, and Tibetan tradition holds that uh, there are people who are enlightened today and they can come back again and again to, uh, to help people. The fifth, it turns out, was crucial to the history of Tibet and crucial to the history of actually the entire Tibetan plateau, which now extends all the way from um, um, Afghanistan uh, and uh, pa Pakistan all the way up into the middle of China. Drop a pin in China, in the middle of China, and you're still in Tibetan culture. In 1642, the Dalai Lama, aided by a sizable uh, army uh, from, uh, led by Mongolian leaders, won a long civil war uh, for the control of Lhasa, which was at that point the center of, uh, of the Tibetan economic and political realm. Um, 1642 was the year when centralization uh, began to grow exponentially. It became not only a political center, um, a symbolic center 
for the Buddhist traditions in Tibet, uh, but a cultural center as well. And there's no finer uh, um, architectural symbol of that than the Potala Palace. At one time, the uh, we still believe the largest building in the world with over a thousand rooms. Um, here you see what is probably a 19th century uh, um, painting of that and um, it was a really famous um, uh, subject for painting all over the world. Okay, why did this building exist and what was it? Well, it was two things, let's say. It was a, um, a let's say it was three things. It was a political center if you came through Tibet from someplace else, you had to go here to get permission to go anyplace else in Tibet. It was a military center. The thing is a fort. It's a fort. It was meant to defend against um, uh, rivals. And it's also a symbolic center, too. So every Dalai Lama after the fifth Dalai Lama is interred there. They are embalmed and then put in uh, these gorgeous... Uh, uh, gilt gold uh, stupas, stupas or reliquaries. Now why is that important? It's important because of the Buddhist mythology surrounding the Dalai Lama. Why is he so important? It's because he, as an enlightened being, looked around the world eons ago and said, what's the most wretched place I can find to go help, pe go, go help people? And he looked around and he said, no, it's not Palm Beach, no, it's not Montana, uh, no, it's not southern India. It's way up there in the boonies in Tibet. And he landed there. And uh, again, according to tradition, uh, he made a vow to stay there until all people are enlightened and to ease the suffering lifetime after lifetime. So imagine the kind of power of that narrative uh, if you combine that with a political center and an economic center. That's what we have in Lhasa. That's what we have in the form of the Potala Palace. Um, we have a wealth of data about life in Lhasa, um, uh, but it's in certain forms. It's narrative, it's biography, it's theology. It's not quantitative data. This has presented us with great challenges for trying to represent what's meaningful about a place like Lhasa and its history through, um, uh, through this process of, uh, of visualization driven by uh, uh, quantifying. It's very challenging. Uh, for that reason, in part, we've led towards, uh, we've moved towards uh, using uh, photographs from the early 20th century rather than our immense textual data. Um, let's see, what else do I want to talk about? The cultural data. We've had about 25 years of collecting cultural data, so what you see here is the work of uh, literally hundreds of people over the last 20 years that goes into the back end of this um, uh, and yet what we were able to represent in this um, uh, project is still only a fraction of what, what we have. So when Will says it's a, um, it's a uh, work in progress, it means it's a lifetime work, right? Not a couple of years. I'll say one more thing. Why does it matter today? It matters today because um, of, the, of the 20th century history of Tibet. <coughs> In the 1940s, Lhasa was probably a town of about 25,000. Now it's probably heading towards 700,000. The, there's been immense population transfers from uh, mainland China to Tibet. There's been immense population growth. 
and the face of it has changed so rapidly we can barely even keep track of it. As Guoping will talk about, we were able to use uh, satellite imagery uh, to get back to a period just on the eve of this exponential expansion in the, in the 1960s. And we were also able to use maps from the 1940s to try and capture something of the traditional Tibetan township and the Potala's place in that. So maybe I should move on to um, uh, have Guoping talk about GIS. So uh, uh, to summarize, basically we have a huge collection of data and uh, the data, different data sets are in different forms, uh, mostly in, in text, and also we have uh, images of historic photos and maps, and also kind of lots of um, uh, multimedia contents currently in the uh, Tibetan Himalayan library. And uh, the way we want to organize all the data is, uh, is different from a traditional approach, not by a subject, not by the authors, and by collections. We decided to organize all the materials by their spatial locations. But uh, as you know, that most of historical evidences and uh, materials do not have any kind of geographic kind of registration associated with them to begin with. So that's why we started to look for uh, a good reference data so that we can reference other things. So this is the earliest um, um, uh, image we can find. We can find, and this is actually a uh, a uh, uh, satellite image captured in um, 1966. Uh, by a spy satellite. Um, so it was declassified in 2002, and we were able to acquire it. And we also uh, collected a huge amount of other data sets, including the remote sensed, uh, the terrain data set, as you can see on the right. And this is the uh, SRTM, um, digital elevation model data. And we stitched together data sources from uh, the DEM data from different sources with different resolution and the calibration in order to make things accurate. And then finally, we bring everything into uh, GIS. So as you can see, that uh, we uh, spatially registered all our um, like uh, historical maps. Um, they are often distorted because there was no modern survey technology when the, the map was created. And uh, we, we tried our best to stitch together those images. And we also digitized a lot of features of the historical maps, including building footprints, the road network. And we also tried to digitize lots of additional features based on the, the description of the text, the travel diaries, including the Linghua, as you can see, around the city. And we also have a large collection of historic photos. And, uh, we took a long time to accurately locate where those photos were taken and which angle, which view direction it was. So in GIS, we were able to represent all of those photos by those points as well as a cone representing the view shed. So you don't have to search a historical photo by a subject keyword. You can just look at them by their spatial locations. And for 3D models, because we don't have a lot of evidence about most of the buildings. And uh, we still have a lot of the, the landmark buildings, of course, and we, uh, that we are all able to model ac accurately. But for the majority of the buildings, especially residential buildings, uh, we don't have lots of documentation. So used, we used a technique called the procedural modeling uh, with a program called City Engine, the same program that it was actually used to create the city in the movie uh, Zootopia, as you might be familiar with. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about the particular techniques um, involved in this step. Let's see. 
So with City Engine, you're basically taking 2D and creating 3D based on the data that comes along with your GIS. Um, that's procedural modeling rather than manual modeling, where you build uh, the buildings by hand, which the, the uh, building that you see in the middle that's textured is a hand-built building <laughs> that's been placed within the procedurally modeled uh, city of Lhasa. And then, I don't think we're so, out of time. Maybe. Well, we had 10 minutes, 10 minutes ago. Okay. <laughs> so, so basically, um, so we had to build two platforms to, uh, to just uh, publish the, the data collection. Uh, one is by doing this. This is the city engine uh, uh, web scene. And sorry, we don't have time to show the whole animation, but basically on the website, you can just query the historical images. You can turn and turn off different layers. You can look for historical uh, photos by the, the locations. And you can also look at the, 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 the kind of slideshow. It's a tour of different sites, which is basically documented by uh, we, our assistant accurately compared his work photos with actual the terrain and estimated where the photos actually, the, the experience that people had in the history. History. So, yep. So, we needed to integrate the GIS with the platform that the consortium was building. The platform is mainly built um, using uh, Drupal uh, technologies. Um, before we did that, though, we needed to get the 3D data from City Engine into an interactive form, and so we used the Unity 3D Game Engine. Um, when we do this, once we've created the data in GIS, you can do anything with it, right? But you sever the, the uh, back-end data connection. So we had to reconnect the data once we got it into Unity 3D. Um, and again, Unity 3D is uh, a free game engine. Anybody can play with it. Anybody can do what they want with it. Um, Integration uh, then uh, meant that we needed to take the Unity 3D, place it into a web page along with Drupal, which allowed us to display uh, text and image content that responds directly through the, to the 3D. And while you're in the 3D, objects inside 3D, the 3D world respond directly back to the text so that you could curate your own tours or you could follow curated tours. Um, you could also annotate objects within uh, the 3D world. There are timeline features. It's multi-participant, uh, which is one of the features of a game engine. Um, and so we worked on all these things, but as I said, it's a work in progress, so it's not completed yet. And um, I'm just going to talk briefly about, uh, or uh, Curtis is going to talk briefly about an example we put online uh, from the Percival Landon tour of the early 20th century. Okay, we wanted to give people a sense. Do you, do you want to just run it, like a one minute of it? We don't have enough. Okay, all right, okay. Um, we wanted to give people a sense of what it was like to walk through uh, Lhasa, especially along um, uh, important pilgrimage routes, important symbolic routes, such as the Lingkor that uh, Guoping mentioned, which is the long circumambulation route around the city. We were able to do this through um, the, the maybe prescience, you might say, of a, a British fellow, Percival Landon, who took photos all along the existing Lingkor as it was in, 12, in 1903 and 1904. This turned out to be about the best source we had for a comprehensive vision of the circumambulation path. 
Um, let's see. What else? What else do I want to talk about? It's too bad that we're not able yeah. to play the animation. Yeah. Actually, there's supposed to be an animation that you can see how actually you can use the website. But it's uh, okay. The website maybe you can visit. Uh, yeah. Imagine yourself <laughs> walking through Lhasa. <laughs> Um, um, let's see. I, maybe I just want, want to say one other thing. And there's a, there's a whole ethical conversation here to be had about our uses of data um, and the the way that these forms of data uh, are are came were originated and preserved. Uh, we don't have time for that. But we use data from Nazis. We use data from the uh, present Chinese government. We use data from Tibetans. We use data from. Um, uh, travelers, empire builders, and colonialists to build this kind of thing. Um, our hope is that by creating something that's open source and that has some life in a public institution that we can give back a little bit to that sordid story of the creation of all of this data. But that's a really challenging thing to do, huh? and it doesn't come uh, free by any means. Uh, so maybe we can think through some of those material, some of those issues, as I'm sure um, many of you are as you're creating uh, archival projects. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, mm -hmm. yeah. so, so moving forward. Ah. Here's a drawer with a mouse. Uh, okay. um, so moving forward, um, so I think especially for our young generation and uh, uh, the generation we call sometimes call digital native generation versus digital immigrants, like most of us are. Um, the best way for them to learn is actually to just uh, uh, to let them just experience the history. The best way to for them to learn the historical geography is actually to present the the, the historical setting to them in an immersive setting. So imagine the future when you visit Lhasa and then you can look at this Potala Palace again here. Imagine you can bring a, a smart glasses like this and you can just look around and because the smart device will know where you are and which direction you're facing. So it will present the historical photos as you see here. And then you can turn on, so you can query, click on some places and then you prevent you will see all the historical kind of evidences that go with the photo, and you can learn the history, learn the geography. This is our dream, and we are still working towards that goal. Thank you very much. Our next presentation is the Plateau People's Web Portal, a model for ethical access to cultural heritage. Trevor James Bond is the co-director of the Center for Digital Scholarship and Curation and the Associate Dean for Digital Initiatives and Special Collections at the Washington State University Libraries. He is currently working on grants funded by the Institute of Museum and Library Services, IMLS, the American Council of Learned Societies, ACLS, and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. He has presented widely and published articles on collecting and access to archives. He received his MLIS and a Master's in Ancient History at UCLA, and he recently completed his PhD in Public and Western History at Washington State University. His dissertation, titled Why Should We Have to Buy Our Own Things Back, describes the struggle over the Spalding Allen collection, exploring the Nez Pierce's tribe to um, exploring the Nez Pierce tribe's successful effort to purchase the earliest documented collection of their material culture from the Ohio Historical Society. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. I'd like to begin my presentation by acknowledging the place I come from, uh, Washington State University, and our Center for Digital Scholarship and Curation is located on the traditional homelands of the Palouse Band of Indians 
and the ceded territories of the Nez Perce tribe. I'd also like to acknowledge the work of my uh, colleague and center director, Dr. Kim Kristen, and our director of technology, Alex Merrill. The Plateau People's Web Portal is based on software developed at Washington State University called Mukadu, and the R is silent. That trips up many people. Uh, Mukadu's a free open source platform that is really built with indigenous values in mind as a way to ethically curate um, digital cultural heritage. The origins of Mukudu go back to my colleague Kim Kristen's field work in Central Australia with the Warmongu people in the mid-1990s. While she was there, the Warmongu community received a digital return of photographs from missionaries and other government documents and needed um, uh, help as a way to bring these materials online. They quickly um, put their cultural protocols in an analog form about how to circulate these materials. Among this community, many uh, cultural materials are um, uh, designated men's business or women's business, and so this analog form was the first method of employing these uh, cultural protocols to accessing these materials. To put these materials online, Kim started working with the community as a way to um, put these values into practice in a digital realm. And the name Mukudu means in Waramangu a safe keeping place. It's a dilly bag um, that elders hold, but they can't be stingy with the knowledge in these. They need to share this material appropriately. And the first iteration of this archive was something that was available only locally, and users would log in and then access this material based on the Warmongoose community's desires to have the content organized around family items and categories that they themselves defined. Uh, moving to Washington State University 10 years ago, the uh, Plateau Center um, and Washington State University holds a memorandum of understanding with regional tribes. And this council, this advisory council, um, requested from WSU a software platform so that tribal communities could share their cultural heritage in ethical ways. And the first iteration of the Plateau People's Web Portal launched um, about 10 years ago with three communities. Uh, six years later, there were six, and today uh, there are now eight communities participating in the portal. You'll notice in the background there's a scene of the Columbia River, and this was an image selected by the tribes as the Columbia River unites these communities across the uh, Columbia Plateau. But those eight aren't the only communities involved. We have numerous uh, communities that provide content into the site. I've highlighted the uh, National Anthropological Archives of the Smithsonian Institute. We have uh, numerous other uh, contributing institutions that provide um, materials in digital form for curation on the site. Another feature of the site is that each community has its own custom page, landing page. This is the Coeur d'Alene page, and I'd just like to point out that the tribe selected this color uh, photograph on beautiful Lake Coeur d'Alene, really highlighting that these are contemporary, vibrant 
communities. They don't exist only in black and white photographs and in dioramas. So that was Michelle Clark um, speaking a traditional greeting in, in Coeur d'Alene. And these landing pages um, allow communities to embed audio and video as well. And working with the tribes, one of the things that we've realized is the great need for language instruction. And I'll talk a little bit more about our dictionary building features later in the presentation. So cultural protocols are ways that communities um, circulate knowledge in ways that reflect their own values. This is an analog version from Central Australia, again, showing um, a method of hiding the identity of somebody who recently was deceased. Eventually, this tape could be removed. Cultural protocols in the communities that we work with vary, but these are some of the big um, buckets, if you will. We have protocols around gender, uh, seasonal protocols. Some songs may only uh, be sung after our first snow, um, sacred protocols. And then a broad category of community-defined protocols. And the software we've developed really allows any community to define these protocols around access. And I'd just like to highlight that these protocols are not about restricting access. It's about um, respecting traditions and circulating knowledge in ways that are important to the communities. The other big feature of the site is that communities define their own categories. I think sometimes libraries and archives love to talk about collaboration, and collaboration really takes the form of, we'd like to do this project, we're going to use our platform and our standards. So Mukudu turns that on end in that the communities themselves define the categories that they wish to have their material organized. In the Plateau People's Web Portal, um, we have 12 categories now uh, defined by the tribes. And this is also a flexible feature of the database that if new materials come in that don't fit one of these categories, the communities can add additional categories as well. Really at the heart of the Plateau People's Web Portal are digital heritage items. And these are um, media assets combined with metadata and community knowledge layered on top and we can also allow communities to form relationships between these digital heritage items. So a couple of examples of this. There's a collection of glass lantern slides from my department at Washington State University related to the Chamala Indian Boarding School in Salem, Oregon. Uh, this site um, brings back trauma, traumatic memories for many communities where children were forcibly removed from their families set to these military-style schools where they were um, heaved up a very heavy dose of assimilationist um, uh, education and uh, norming. In addition to the brief metadata that I showed on the previous slide from our department, um, individual communities then added their own cultural uh, stories on top of these objects. And if you look at the tabs on top, you can see that multiple communities narrated the content in different ways. And I'll show an example of this. So this scene um, in a bakery then has a cultural narrative by a Umatilla elder um, the text is uh, associated with the individual who contributed this community knowledge. And then we also have some embedded audio that uh, further enriches the narrative of this event. Chamala was 
Well, for breakfast, what, twice a week we'd have cornmeal mush. And there'd be big worms in that mush, and if you didn't set that damn worm aside and eat that mush, you didn't get any more. That was it. Another example then between um, uh, metadata provided by a collecting institution, in this case we have a root gathering bag held by the Museum of Arts and Culture in Spokane, Washington. Uh, the description includes uh, the terms round, twine, cylindrical bag, hemped and cotton, a uh, very uh, standard museum description. But if we look at what the Warm Springs community did to enhance this record, we see um, at the top on your right a new title rather than a generic root gathering bag. It's now a Wasco Man basket. You can see the protocols that are assigned to it, the contributors to this traditional knowledge, and a traditional knowledge label that I'll talk about in a little bit. Just below the text, there's an embedded video um, that further highlights um, traditional knowledge associated with this object. It's a short, uh, just a little bit over a minute clip that I'll play. Was Looking at this Saturday, just thinking about how important that Wasco people thought them in. And it's like we're talking about the wedding veil. This is the kind of man that normally the family of our daughter would pick somebody that's well trained to be a Wasco man caring, be able to care for his family and hunt for deer to put meat on the table to take care of his family. I still get goosebumps every time I see these videos. Um, I, I think one of, one of the things I want to highlight is, is just the power of, of hearing the Wasco language and this element of cultural sharing, preservation, and also language instruction. Also, too, I think this is a really powerful example of how the scholarly record, the archival record, can really be enhanced with deep, meaningful collaborations with communities and the importance of returning digital objects and other sorts of collections back to source communities so that um, they're available to the community. Uh, cultural narratives such as that, um, rich, deep, layered metadata, this does not happen quickly. When we write grant proposals in the CDSE, 
We really talk about outcomes rather than the quantity. We're never going to be a giant aggregator. We're never going to have hundreds of thousands of digital objects in a site like the Plateau People's Web Portal. But what is there is vetted by the communities and layered in often rich and meaningful ways. So how do we get there? Well, we use a process that we term uh, collaborative curation. And I'm just going to uh, talk briefly about that. We've defined 11 individual steps of collaborative curation. The video that you just saw took about three years of work and included multiple site visits. Um, we started by writing down notes, then doing an audio recording, then eventually a video recording. And metadata of this nature really involves long-term relationships of trust and respect and also giving the communities the ability to define how this knowledge is shared and circulated. So 11 steps involving research, community consultation, visiting repositories, content selection, um, gathering materials, uh, content review, defining access and protocols, um, community metadata, reviews, and in engagement, sharing, and um, uh, publishing, I, I suppose. Working with tribal communities, though, these 11 steps aren't fixed. They're fluid. And in many communities, uh, collections research, community consultation will be combined into a single step. I mentioned briefly traditional knowledge labels. I'll just say something about them um, briefly. These are a set of labels that Kim um, developed with a colleague, um, Jane Anderson, at uh, New York University. And they're meant to be placed alongside copyright and creative commons. In the Western copyright system, we really have uh, protection of an individual author or creator. But with many Native communities, knowledge is really recognized as being a community asset. So copyright does not help them. Also, many Native American collections are held by third parties. They've been uh, removed through colonialism and other collecting processes from their source communities. So these traditional knowledge labels are advisory labels on how the communities would like to see their materials cited and otherwise um, recognized, and also recognizing that the uh, content uh, may include different aspects of, uh, of advisory notices. So some of these that you see here are um, related to families, seasonal use, outreach, education, non-commercial use. An example of the TK labels in action is a recent collaboration with the Passamaquoddy people. They developed their own customized TK label site. With uh, a portal uh, welcoming in the Passamaquoddy language and also customizing the text of these labels into Passamaquoddy with pronunciations and with uh, text that explains both in their language and also in English as well. And as of this summer, these traditional knowledge labels are now embedded in the kind of Fort Knox of metadata catalogs, the Library of Congress's online catalog. Um, it's really a wonderful um, collaboration showing the partnership between Library of Congress and the Passamaquoddy people to um, 
collaboratively curate a collection of wax cylinder recordings from the 1890s um, that include traditional knowledge like we saw in the Plateau People's Web Portal and also these traditional knowledge labels that are embedded in the Library of Congress's uh, catalog now. We've been responsive in working with communities to try to meet their needs through software development. Development, and I'm going to finish up my presentation with just a couple of examples. Um, communities have mentioned the desire to have multi-page documents, so we have the ability to, say, uh, put in displays of scrapbooks and other documents. Uh, this is an example from the Chamawa Indian Boarding School again, a student scrapbook. And then also using that view to really highlight very detailed aspects of objects or belongings, uh, such as this basket with uh, views from the inside of the basket, underneath details that may assist uh, contemporary weavers in sustaining these traditions. And then I mentioned the importance of language work throughout this presentation, and we've done work uh, developing dictionaries so that um, we have uh, recordings of words that can be browsed, listened to, and then also these these individual dictionary words can be closely associated with uh, uh, digital heritage items. You can see there on your right um, some of the objects that the vocabulary is associated with. So in the Columbia Plateau, for example, with the Nez Perce tribe, there's a great emphasis on horses and horse regalia and a whole host of very uh, specific vocabulary associated with horses. So this is a way then to um, additionally curate digital heritage items, but then also um, provide uh, materials and platforms for use in schools in, uh, say, Head Start language instruction. So I'm going to wrap it up there by uh, just uh, saying that this technology is, is really, the technology is really not important. It's this, these relationships of collaboration and trust that we've been working to develop over years. And I think also the recognition that our, our tribal partners um, have um, uh, stories to share and um, knowledge that we need to respect and also to put on par with other sorts of knowledge, other sources, and also to accurately and, and ethically represent the sources of these um, cultural narratives and knowledge. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trevor. Our final presentation of this session is Introducing the Digital Library of the Middle East. Peter Herdrick consults on project strategy related to cultural heritage preservation, libraries, and communications. He is the co-founder of the Antiquities Coalition and the project director for the Digital Library of the Middle East. He served previously as CEO of the Archaeological Institute of America, publisher of Archaeology Magazine, a television news producer, and he is a founding board member of Rare Book School. At the UVA Library, he was once called America's leading filmmaker on obscure bibliographical subjects <laughs> for his work on RBS videos with Terry Bollinger. <laughs> Eva Kadivar is a Tehran-bred Middle East Studies librarian in the making. She is a paraprofessional staff member at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in the Middle East Studies Resources Division of the Davis Library, 
working closely with the Wilson Special Collections Library on enhancing the library's Persian Studies collections. She holds a BA in Sociology, and she's worked with librarians and educators in Tehran on K-12 critical thinking curriculum development. She's the recipient of the 2017 NEH Global Book Histories Initiative Scholarship at Rare Book School and of the 2018 RBMS Scholarship. She's currently working toward her MSLS at the UNC School of Library and Information Science. And finally, Bethany Novisky is Executive Director of the Digital Library Federation, DLF, at the Council on Library and Information Resources, CLEAR, and a Research Associate Professor of Digital Humanities in the Department of English at UVA. Among other projects, she's currently collaborating with international partners on the Digital Library of the Middle East and with leaders of the HBCU Library Alliance on Digital Libraries as common ground between PWIs and historically black colleges and universities. Dr. Novisky formerly directed the UVA Library Scholars Lab and is a past president of the Association for Computers and the Humanities. Thank you, Donna. Good morning, everybody. Um, so I'm here to give kind of a whirlwind introduction to the Digital Library of the Middle East before, things hand, before um, I hand things off to our project director, Peter, uh, who will talk about the work in much more depth. And then on to our colleague, Kiva, who is going to um, offer us some observations from where she sits as an emerging Middle Eastern Studies librarian. So the DLME is an effort to create the technical, but really more importantly, the social infrastructure required to support a global federated digital library of manuscripts, books, artifacts, and also new media spanning 12 millennia, um, so an ambitious project, multiple languages, cultures, and regions of the Middle East. The project is being incubated at CLEAR, um, which is uh, also the home of the DLF, and it has from the start been a collaboration with the Antiquities Coalition, which is the DC-based nonprofit that Peter co-founded to fight cultural racketeering, or the looting and trafficking of ancient art. So the DLME was inspired by that problem and created in response to the destruction of archaeological sites and artifacts by Daesh. Um, but it quickly expanded in imagination and I think kind of in empathy to beyond being a simple um, sort of inventory of digital surrogates that could record provenance, maybe deter theft, and serve as a copy of last resort, and into something with the ambition to be a collaboratively owned, uh, fully fledged international research and teaching environment. So, with the help of the Whiting Foundation and our technical partners at Stanford University, we built a small prototype in 2017, and it's online at that URL that you see at the top. But the content that you will find in the prototype is all really sort of low-hanging fruit that we harvested for testing purposes from American university libraries. So if you take a peek now, it'll be a little misleading as to um, what the, the sort of goal uh, of the project is. Our prototype uses a number of technologies and approaches that may be familiar to a UVA audience because many of them are in use around here. And one of them, Blacklight, was even pioneered in the Scholars Lab and UVA Library. Um, with the support of the Mellon Foundation, which also funded 
the earliest planning phases of the project, we're now undertaking real implementation. And the new Qatar National Library, which serves as a kind of regional repository for smaller archives, is a major participant and a content contributor in this phase, and they're also offering um, a great deal of language expertise to the project as well. So besides building out the framework right now, this implementation phase will involve a big influx of content held in Middle Eastern libraries, museums, and archives. And the material is being selected, and relationships, most importantly, are being nurtured by a wonderful team of curators led by archaeologist Elizabeth Waraksa. When complete, in addition to um, image interoperability through IIIF and faceted search and browsing across collections that have never um, been brought together before, we'll also be using the capabilities of a tool called Spotlight, uh, kind of a, um, an uh, extension of Blacklight, to enable curators, scholars, and it is, it is my real hope, eventually general users of the platform to create their own arrangements and interpretations of the content of the DLME. So we're just a few months into this two-year implementation grant, and Charles Henry, who is president of CLEAR and my co-PI on the project, is uh, leading work on regional shared governance models and will be overseeing the ultimate migration of this project from where it's being incubated at CLEAR and Stanford to the hands of our partners in Middle Eastern countries. So as you can imagine, that's some uh, thoughtful and delicate work. I want to um, shift gears now and close my little portion of this presentation by sharing a few lines from some very recent writing by Yusuf Omawale. And this comes from an essay called We Already Are, which was written for a Mellon-sponsored Sustainable Futures meeting on community archives that will be held in New Orleans last week, and I know some of us in this room are, are headed there. Um, and I thought to read these lines to you because they crystallize some things that it is my hope that the DLME project always keeps in mind as it works to bridge social, linguistic, and political divides, uh, to reconcile competing national interests and scholarly and disciplinary interests, and to work at multiple scales, engaging large wealthy institutions with their professionally arranged, colonially acquired collections, while also attempting to earn the trust of the stewards of small and endangered regional archives. And most of all, it just sort of spoke to me and I wanted to offer it up to you um, in the context of our, our digital access panel today as a reminder that um, despite all the exciting possibilities of digitization and federation of content in digital libraries and the kind of grassroots storytelling that we might enable through them, there are dangers and losses and misinterpretations inherent in smashing cultural artifacts and the material expression of you know, human lives into machines and into the rationalizing systems of library and museum metadata that have themselves been tools of oppression and othering. And so that's why you know, we look with such admiration and hope at projects like Mukurtu. Um, but so, so here's Omawale, and he's talking in the context of African-American community archives largely, but you might hear an echo of the Arab Spring and of our own project's original motivations, um, rooted as they were in the imagery of war and cultural disposition. So he writes, 
We have arrived at this moment through social movements demanding acknowledgement that we too deserve breath and joy of life. Today, as foundations, universities, museums, and the like marshal resources to colonize what remains of the memories of the dispossessed, and as they author discourses that legitimate such acts, the values we in community must practice are ones of refusal. Refusal not as an act of negation, but as a condition of possibility. We must refuse the rules of inclusion and vocabularies of recognition and legitimacy that are meant to contain our histories. We should not echo articulations that we do not already exist in the archive. We are not marginal or other to the archive, but integral to it. We may be silenced or made invisible, but we have always been present. So that's just a, a really cogent sort of challenge to this project that I hope um, we stay open and attentive to. And so I'll hand it over to Peter. Thank you, Bethany, very much. Uh, let's start here. Great. Uh, it's really a great pleasure to be here and an honor for me to speak at Rare Book School uh, about the Digital Library of the Middle East. When RBS, like Venus on the shores of Cyprus, emerged from the foam at its birthplace back at Columbia, I was actually there. So this is a bit of a homecoming for me. Sincere thanks to Michael, to Barbara, to Danielle, to Donna, and to the rest of the RBS staff for uh, having me here today and for organizing this wonderful presentation and symposium. So let's talk about access, memory, and identity a bit. Access to the digital records of cultural heritage materials and collections around the world is at the heart of what we do at the DLME as we federate disparate collections showcasing the cultural fluorescence of the Middle East and North Africa from global partners and make them readily available to all. It even claims pride of place on our homepage, as you can see, access. Uh, along with this access goal, and Bethany told you a bit about how we do that, um, and we have been able to accomplish that due to the generosity of our partners from the Mellon Foundation, which I want to point out. Uh, we're creating a flexible, sustainable, and interoperable platform that delivers what we expect will one day be tens of millions of records. This is a big project. We also propose a critical cultural heritage preservation goal for our digital library, one that addresses the on-the-ground conditions in the region. Uh, we need not look far to see, see the horrifying desecration of cultural heritage particularly in the Middle East, perpetrated by the so-called Islamic State. Foremost, of course, is the suffering of the people in the region, and with hundreds of thousands killed and tens of millions of people displaced, the human cost is well-nigh incalculable. We keep that in mind as best we can. We are, uh, as, we, as we think about that human suffering, though, we also recognize the threat to our shared cultural heritage. Uh, the looting and illicit trafficking of cultural material as a financial resource for terrorists is a nearly incalculable and unimaginable horror. And let this aerial view of the Syrian archaeological site of Mari suffice to illustrate its ignominy. Those, as you can probably tell and has probably seen, those are looters' pits uh, that uh, were organized by uh, the Daesh um, terrorists to remove material from the ground and sell for, to help fund their... Um, activities. Uh, right, so um, add to that the want and the premeditated destruction throughout the region in places like Palmyra. And pause just for a second and think back what it was like when you opened a news site and you could practically get physically sick by reading yet another account of the infamy perpetrated on the people and the places under the boots of the terrorists. 
and it's readily evident that these threats to local communities and to our shared patrimony are urgent and require immediate response. One example of that threat uh, to which we are responding, Father Columbus Stewart, who many of you know, I'm sure, the executive director of the Hill Museum and Manuscript Library at St. John's University in Minnesota, tells of a collection of manuscripts in Mosul in 2015. He and his colleagues there were able to digitize about 6,000 just before the arrival of ISIS. Uh, in the intervening years, he estimates that 1,500 of those manuscripts have been destroyed. Our response was the creation of the Digital Library of the Middle East. We emphasize the immediate importance of preserving and securing collections, particularly in conflict areas. While our present goal is to create access to a larger number of collections to build out the DLME database, our cultural heritage preservation goal is to work with and fund initiatives that assist at-risk collections to harden digital, digital collections management and security, starting with inventories, description and cataloging, documentation, and digitization of collections. After all, you can't preserve and protect your collection if you don't know what you have. If material disappears, you can't activate the community to help find what's stolen if you don't have digital records, and recovery can't happen without provenance records that prove ownership. This emphasis promotes ongoing access to objects that in many instances are under threat of destruction or loss. It's a strategy that we hope will help ensure the existential continuity of these collections by creating greater security. It's also notable that it isn't just looting and illicit trafficking that causes, the, that causes these existential threats. There are many other reasons uh, and many other causes, including theft, lack of resources, indifference, urbanization, natural disaster, climate change, and general rapacity orchestrated by cultural racketeers, their partners in the illicit trade, and unethical collectors. We all agree. I think that access to information and interventions to ensure the continued existence of collections are critical goals. And we're not alone in this. And that's what I want to delve into just a bit. Access is, an increasing, is increasingly a principal goal of international cultural heritage policy. The UN's 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights proclaims that we all have the right to access information. For the DLMA, this takes on special significance, particularly around the, rights, the right to access information about heritage communities and the denial of that right. In the paroxysm of destruction led by the terrorists of ISIS, sites, buildings, and collections were targeted. The International Criminal Court, in its landmark verdict of September 2016 in the Mali and Al-Mahdi case, recognized that intentionally directing attacks against religious and historic buildings can constitute a war crime. Also targeted were specific communities. Destruction of community records is cited by UNESCO, as Michael mentioned, as a first step towards cultural cleansing, and it's particularly germane to our topic uh, of memory and identity. Let me give you an example of a situation we've come across in our work. In 2016, the Iraq Institute of Conservation of Antiquities and Heritage met in Erbil with minority communities, local minority communities who were so stressed at, at that time and continue to be. There, representatives of the Yazidi community spoke specifically about their struggles. The community was fragmenting as people were driven from, the ancestral home on, from their ancestral home on Mount Sinjar, dispersing to seek safety. Among the few things community members were carrying were family records, photographs, manuscripts, and religious materials that tell the story and create memory, to tell their story and create memory and identity. And they were frightened that these irreplaceable records would be stolen or lost which is, of course, a devastating prospect. When asked if digitization of these records was of interest, representatives all agreed that it was, because they need and, and desire to 
ensure access to this information as a bulwark against destruction of their community. The DLME is invited to a follow-up meeting in Iraq next year to assist in this effort to address this need. The UN has codified and endorsed the, the, most, the most important and broadly adhered to international cultural heritage policy initiatives, including the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the event of armed conflict and its two subsequent protocols in 1954 and 1999, and the 1970 Convention on the Means of Prohibiting and Preventing the Illicit Export, uh, Import, Export, and Transfer of Ownership of Cultural Property. What is to date less well-known and of particular significance to the questions of access and memory and identity was the unanimous passage last year of the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2347. Under the rubric of maintenance of international peace and security, it advocates specific steps for member states to take to combat looting, the illicit trade in cultural material, and terrorism. For, dis for our discussion, it's Section A of Article 17 that's of particular interest. It, quote, calls upon member states in order to prevent and counter trafficking of cultural property, illegally appropriated and exported in context of armed conflicts, notably by terrorist groups, to consider adopting the following measures in relation to such cultural property. This is 17A, introducing or improving cultural heritages and properties local and national inventory lists, including through digitalization of information when possible and making them easily accessible to relevant authorities and agencies as appropriate. Now, this is a critical suggestion, and this critical suggestion to inventory and digitize property lists and make them readily accessible is now codified by the UN and stands as a landmark in international cultural heritage policy. Digital libraries around the world are actually actively implementing inventory, digitization, and accessibility projects at a prodigious rate. In many instances, there are models of multilateral international cooperation and public-private partnership, and they are occurring in vast groups of UN member states. Initiatives like the Digital Library, Digital Library of the Caribbean, the DLME, the Endangered Archives Program at the British Library, Europeana, and the International Digital Ephemera Project at UCLA are just some examples of organizations that are implementing these goals at scale. Digital libraries represent one of the areas in which unified cultural heritage preservation policy is most actively taking hold. Now, this UN effort uh, has an implementation structure as well. The Group of Friends for the Protection of Cultural Heritage is a member state effort to implement UNSC 2347. This is also uh, significant for our question of access. They've taken Article 17A, the call to create access via digitized inventories, as their guidance for implementing on-the-ground projects. The Digital Library of the Middle East has already met with the Group of Friends to plan digitization and access projects that can be federated and made available through the DLME platform. Finally, one last thought. Uh, this is about all of us. Think of this. Maybe it's next Tuesday and you're back at your library working with digital records. Perhaps you're creating access to new records in, in your library catalog or you're creating a finding aid. Take a moment and think about this. You are implementing international cultural heritage policy, part of a community that cares deeply about these issues. That's how important your work is. Thank you very much. And I turn it over to you. Thank you, Bethany and Peter. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, 
I have three points to share, followed by questions that I'm hoping that will feed into the Q&A that we'll have shortly. Um, so the first one is that as a user of a DLME um, and someone that will facilitate access to the DLME to patrons, um, I think about where the DLME stands in the global network of the avenues and portals that users already use to access um, Middle East Studies resources. And I think about um, how the DLME envisions um, its integration um, into that global network, especially in conjunction with widely used portals like the OCLC's WorldCat or the Arab Union's catalog. And I think this is something that I've already heard from um, our faculty in the Middle East Studies Center and our graduate students. Um, um, the second point that I have, um, which is the longer one, I probably won't get to the third one, um, is that I think um, the DLME is in a very special position as a central platform creating access to digital records of Middle East Studies materials to deepen trust with um, MENA institutions like oral history, museums, and um, academic libraries to um, facilitate collaborations and to help them make their collections more visible. And I think there's a responsibility that comes with that role um, that um, I think requires some kind of giving back to these um, communities and institutions in the Middle East. Um, and one example of that giving back that I think about is that um, there's already a very high demand um, between librarians and archivists in the Middle East for um, having the most recent trainings in, within the library science field, like the most recent metadata trainings, and for having more collaborations with um, international partners, um, such as academic libraries that have Middle East collections in America and in Europe. Um, and with that high demand, there are a lot of cultural and administrative obstacles that um, these librarians and archivists face. And I think, um, especially in this particular time, um, we, um, let me just give an example. I think um, as an Iranian, um, with my life being impacted by the Muslim ban and um, being reminded every day of how um, the ability to travel is a luxury for some people, I think the DLME is in a very special position to travel to uh, Middle East countries, Middle East and North Africa, to um, foster these collaborations and facilitate these training opportunities. Um, because, I mean, if we compare the headache of helping librarians and archivists getting visas to travel to conferences in the US and compare that with us going there, not me, clearly, but um, I think the DLME is in a very special position um, to facilitate those opportunities and, and also to collaborate with professional associations that are already in the region like the Arab Federation of Libraries and Information and also the Special Libraries Association, um, the Arab Gulf chapter. 
Um, I don't know how we are in time, but okay, quickly. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier the interest that's already there um, with our faculty and graduate students being a part of the conversation. I think about how in this um, implementing phase, how the curatorial team um, is going to consult maybe an advisory group of potential users such as faculty, librarians, curators. Um, and I'm just gonna turn that over to our Q&A. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of you. Our panelists are now um, going to take questions until we break at 10.45. So um, we will have a microphone on either aisle. Um, and so please walk up and um, we'll alternate bet between the two different aisles to take questions. Um, so please just walk up to someone with a microphone at the head of the aisle. Thank you. Washington or Charlottesville, Virginia. We need to 
we our plan is to turn the entire thing over to a collaborator and a colleague in the Middle East region and have this have the digital library of the Middle East be there and be run by Middle Easterners. That's the plan. So we're hoping that what we can do in the meantime is, of course, be very cognizant of the contribution of local communities, be very cognizant of the diversity of that group, because from Morocco to India is a long way, long variations, or lots of variations in language and approach and religiosity and how things are practiced. So uh, that's, that, that, I would say, is, is something that we, we do think about. Uh, we are in the front. Yeah. We try to bake it in from the beginning. Now we have to do it right. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I appreciate that question so much, and it is the, I think it's the key question for a project like this. Um, one uh, challenge that we've had is sort of the scale on which we're operating. So in, in these early phases of the project, there's less working direct, you know, it, it was, um, as we mentioned, inspired by the work the Antiquities Coalition and sort of um, uh, lobbying and efforts through UNESCO to address um, cultural racketeering, right? But the, the work that we're doing in this early phase is with um, cultural heritage institutions in the region much more than directly with the communities that they serve. So we're, it's, we're so many removes that we're sort of like moving through these colonial filters, you know, constantly and, uh, and seeking partners that are doing right by the people that they serve while we're here in the, can we just get you all talking to each other, you know, at that level position. So it's, I think it's gonna be the perpetual challenge and um, I also, I don't think that we've, um, ever you know, talk to public about the project without having um, to, to address this question. And I hope that that never stops too, that, you know, that it, it sort of stays honest and, and everybody's mind. Can I respond briefly about this as well? Yeah, thanks. It's an excellent uh, issue. Uh, employment, training, and educational advancement. Those are three areas that we put energy into over the decades with our work in Tibetan cultural areas. Um, we have now probably about 25 part-time, full-time employees working on uh, cultural preservation, only a part of which we see in the back end of the uh, 3D program that we showed you this morning. Um, we've worked hard to uh, move uh, foundation and federal dollars from uh, Europe and North America into China and South Asia. Uh, we have a social entrepreneurship program, federally funded, which being, brings people largely involved with cultural preservation and uh, cultural and ecological tourism to the states for uh, uh, job training and advancement. And we have done our best, although um, this is a place where I really wish we could um, do more, to bring people from China, Tibetans from China, into our PhD program uh, and enable them to um, get good jobs in China. And so we just had a person, or actually our first uh, uh, Tibetan who's uh, a Chinese passport holder in a tenure track job in a Chinese university. So um, we're working on that. But thank you for that question. I'd like to add to just briefly um, just being mindful of, of the narratives of the dominant culture and the fact that many of these. Um, 
archaeologists, ethnographers, and others that were documenting the so-called vanishing races of the late 19th century um, thought that they were doing this work because these communities would disappear, but indeed they have not disappeared. They've changed. They've been resilient and adapted uh, to centuries of um, unending assimilationist policies of the federal government, and I think we're at a opportunity now to uh, collaborate, uh, reintroduce some of these sources, or facilitate these relationships so that these sources can be returned to communities. Um, as a scholar, one of the things I recognize in, in doing my work on uh, the Nez Perce tribe's uh, purchase of a collection of their cultural heritage was not viewing these objects as beautiful works of art or the earliest this and that, but really as examples of life ways of, of how you be, how you work with porcupine quills, those sorts of things that are uh, powerful tools within these communities that continue to engage in these activities and um, want to pass on this knowledge among community members into the future. So I think something like Mukudu allows indigenous Native First Nation communities to uh, provide a needed corrective to the dominant culture's narrative about uh, culture and cultural history. So my name is Monika Rowe. I am the director of Library Services Federation from Johnson C. Smith University, which is located in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm also the board chair for the Historical Anthropologist and University Library Alliance. And my question is, being that Many of you coming from majority institutions and you're doing a lot of diverse community work. Can you speak a little bit about how do you build trust, especially when you're thinking about people from different parts of the world at the end, the um, Native American culture? How do you begin to build trust to have them contribute to the dialogue and the protocols as well? Can you just all speak a little bit about that?
conversation. Uh, I think there's a, a number of different factors that all uh, feed into building relationships of trust. I think one of them is uh, kind of a long-term commitment to the work. Uh, our center is four years old, but it's uh, antecedents date back to you know good 15 years of uh, engagement with Native communities in places like uh, the Atom meetings and other things. I think Mugudu itself is a is a tool that really came out of the needs of Indigenous and Native communities, and I think it's it's unique in that it really uh, decentralizes the power of the narrative in that. I didn't talk about the back end of Mukadu, but the communities themselves um, control the content and the access to these materials. They approve everything that goes into the site. So there's embedded layers of vetting that go on. And I think one of the very powerful aspects about that now is in our state with requirements for teaching native history, we now have uh, digital heritage items that are curated vetted by Native communities that now our Department of Education, our College of Education rather, is, is collaborating with the tribes to build a new curriculum for statewide education so that um, many more individuals will be um, uh, exposed to the sort of narratives that we saw earlier. So I, I think those are a couple of thoughts. Uh, for me, coming out of ancient history and uh, working in libraries as the head of a special collections, I've, I've gained a much more nuanced uh, appreciation of what it means to be a, a welcoming institution. And that can mean uh, things like having spaces for uh, members to um, interact with objects. Uh, it can mean uh, covering parking. It can mean, most of all, a smiling face at the door to welcome members in. It can also mean recognizing that not every community member has the luxury to travel across state and visit an archive in person. So that means um, doing things like uh, waiving reproduction fees and making these resources available. So I think it's, this is a, a multi-pronged issue in that um, it requires both a, a recognition and an understanding of historic injustices, but also many efforts that can build trust in the present day, and these can be very small gestures um, in some ways, but in the end they, they become very powerful um, ways to, to gain trust. And the last thing I'll, I'll just say, you know, I'm here talking as a, now a middle-aged white man, uh, but I think too, um, there's a, a lot of dialogue that's happening outside, uh, there's a lot of work on these collections that I and my colleagues are not aware of because they're I just want to talk real quick about how complicated trust is with Tibetan cultures um, and Chinese cultures. Uh, because you have to balance the two when you're doing field work in Tibet, especially in the Tibetan autonomous region. And I just want to say that one of the most powerful ways of ensuring trust is through language. I do not speak Tibetan, but many of my colleagues do that I work with in Lhasa. And when you speak to native Lhasans in Tibetan, they will open up to you a lot more than if you're speaking to them in Chinese. And that has enabled a, a lot of trust between our group 
on doing interviews with the people that live in, the Tibetans that live in Lhasa and relating their lives and their culture. Language is very powerful. I think we have time for one last question from this aisle. Good morning, my name is Libby Planner. I'm an optimist at Elon University in North Carolina. Um, my question is primarily uh, for Trevor, but anyone else who can speak to it, I'm happy to hear. Um, my first question is, from your uh, position in a public university, how did you navigate building a platform that denied access based on gender or age? Um, and my second question is, through building these, um, these relationships and starting these conversations, has that led to repatriation of any materials after the community? Uh, thank you for your question. I think one of the um, underpinnings of our work is that we're at a, a land grant uh, university with a mission uh, to serve the whole state and uh, particularly um, underserved communities. Our university has a memorandum of understanding with the region's tribes and a, a tribal advisory board that reports to the president. So some of that's in there. I think the bigger um, issue around open access is uh, one I'm still trying to uh, understand, but I, I think it's uh, a, a recognition that open access really um, privileges the dominant community and that um, I think it behooves the dominant community to be mindful of the richness of cultural heritage and to respect that other communities have protocols for sharing and circulating knowledge that have served those communities well through centuries of onslaught and assimilation. Uh, we need to, I think, be respectful of those things. And I'll stop there. I'm afraid we have to wrap up the Q&A now to stay on time. Um, but I hope that the questions, if um, there are more, will keep coming during um, the break that we're about to have um, out in the lobby. Um, and please join me in thanking all of our panelists. <laughs>